when, then we read those very sad words in 1 Samuel 8, 19, where the Bible records, but the people refused to listen. The people refused to listen. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and find uh, and fight our battles. And we are so often like that. We are not interested in what God wants to do in terms of leadership in our lives. We want what the nations want. We want to be like everybody else. And we are not like everybody else. A chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Amen. So God tells Samuel to give them everything that they wanted, but then he was going to choose who their king would be. And that's our story for today. I'm going to be sharing a broad and brief overview of King Saul and some lessons we can take away from King Saul's life. Now, Saul seemingly started off rather well. He was a good-looking bloke. He was head and shoulders above his contemporaries. He had come from a family of means, and, and he just seemed to have everything going for him. Spiritually, he was chosen. He was anointed. He was capable. He seemed to have the whole package. But eventually, his life derails he ends up becoming deceitful, fearful, arrogant, uh, and even eventually demonized. And we see right at the end of his life, he commits suicide. So this guy who was chosen by God, specifically handpicked, God said, this is the man who starts off so well. He makes several decisions in his life that causes him to end up in a place eventually of suicide. And that's what we're going to be at, this really tragic story of God's chosen anointed man who ends up in a bad place because of his choices. And for today, I'm just going to touch on a couple passages. We'll be going backwards and forwards as I share a few thoughts with you. So lesson number one that we're going to learn from Saul and they're all negative, they're things that we mustn't do. He became impatient with the things of God. We see Saul becoming impatient for God. If you'll turn to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1. Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and not the Lord, Yahweh, anointed you leader over his inheritance. Now, listen to the specifics that come. It's not just modern-day prophecy of spiritual fortune-telling where someone comes to you and says, oh, your business is going to do well, you know, or uh, do this or do that. Or there, There's no specifics today with these so-called prophets. But listen to the prophet Samuel. When you leave me, you will meet Two men, not one man or five men. You'll meet two men, he says, uh, near Rachel's tomb at Zelzah on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, the donkeys you set out to look for have been found. Now, if you read before this, you'll find out Saul's dad telling him to go and look for some missing donkeys. 
So the donkeys have been found, and now your father has stopped thinking about them, and he's worried about you. He's asking, what shall I do about son? Verse 3, then you will go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you will go to Gilbia of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, tambourines, flutes, and harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Amazingly specific predictions. And every single one of them came to pass. Every no doubt about his calling. Here he had innocently gone to find some donkey decided to consult with the seer, the prophet Samuel, to find out what might be going on. And then he gets given all of the stuff just lumped upon him, but specific. It couldn't have been a mistake. Then in verse 7 and 8, prophet Samuel says, Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hands find to do, for God is with you. In other words, these signs are a... a a confirmation of the fact that God has chosen you, Saul, to be king over the nation of Israel. Verse 8, go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days. Wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. Now, others might have gone about announcing, hey, I'm king of Israel, you know, bow down. But not the Saul. We find a man of incredible character here. I mean, all of these predictions, all of the stuff that's happened to him, and yet he quietly goes back to his daddy's farm and does what he was doing beforehand. How far have I got here? Let's have a look. 1 Samuel 10, 15. Okay, Saul's uncle said, I meet Saul's uncle on the way. Tell me what Samuel said to you. Saul doesn't tell him, hey, I'm king of Israel. I'm anointed. All of these wonderful things happened to me. What does he say? Uh, Saul replied, Samuel assured us that the donkeys had been found, but he did not tell his uncle what Samuel had said about the kingship. He doesn't say a word. Maybe there's a lesson for all of us here today. If you have to tell people what you do, then you probably aren't. <laughs> Samuel didn't have to say a word. So if you've got to go around telling people, hey, I'm this, or hey, I'm that, or I've got this, or I've done that, you, you're probably not worth listening to. I don't know if you've heard the phrase fig jam. 
you get some people who, who, <laughs> who are known as fig jam. Now, I love fig jam. But fig jam stands for the following. Flip, I'm good. Just ask me. You know some people like that? They, they, they fig jam. Flip, I'm good. Just ask me. <laughs> it's like, I know everything. Saul's not like that. He doesn't have to expose himself. He doesn't have to tell everybody, hey, bow to me. I'm the king. Samuel's anointed me. He doesn't do that. He says to his uncle, no, donkeys are fine. No problem. Anyway, Samuel called one together, and in verse 24, he's saying, do you see the man? No one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, long live the king. Samuel says, this is Saul. And then the people responded. And we see in the rest of the story in 1 Samuel 10, uh, the prophet explaining what royalty is supposed to do and not supposed to do and sends everybody to their homes, including Saul. King Saul goes back to working on his dad's farm. Then we pick up a story in 1 Samuel chapter 11, where Nahash the Ammonite starts causing trouble for the Israelites. And in chapter 11 verse Five, the Bible says, just then Saul was returning from the fields behind the oxen, and he asked, what's wrong with the people? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. Now, obviously, the Ammonites were going to come and cause trouble for them. So he's gone back to doing, even though he's been anointed. And then in verse 6, we read, when Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came upon him, and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messengers through Israel proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of everyone or anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people and they turned out as one man. Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. So when the need arises, Saul rises up in his calling, gets things done, and the Ammonites, we read, were completely neutralized. All the people went to Gilgal and confirmed uh, Saul as king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship Offerings before the Lord and Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. The Ammonites were taken care of and they were celebrating. We read the story now in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Go on a little bit. I still haven't got to my first lesson. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel and Saul was at Gilgal waiting for Samuel. And here comes the lesson. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings, and Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. Saul was not authorized to make that offering. Saul had been told by Samuel to wait until he had come. Saul's wisdom had decided the people were leaving. I better do something about this. So he starts taking on a role that is not his own. 
He did not have the patience to wait out the full seven days. The seventh day had probably arrived, and sometime during that day, he had, he had misbehaved himself, done what he shouldn't do, and later on in that same seventh day, Samuel arrives and says the following, What have you done? Asked Samuel. Saul replied, and here comes the blame game. The, the, the entire uh, whatever legacy of King Saul is playing the blame game. He says, all the men were scattering and you did not come. So it's the people who were leaving. It was their fault. Samuel, it's your fault because you didn't get there time or supposedly. And the Philistines, they were as I thought, now the Philistines will come down at me in Gilgal, and I've not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. How does Samuel respond? You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established kingdom over Israel for all time. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Any names spring to mind? <laughs> God willing, we'll talk about David next week. He has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Isn't that tragic? This is the guy that God had handpicked as the first king over Israel, who decided it's everybody else's fault, and therefore he was going to do certain things that he wasn't allowed to do. And as a result, he lost the kingdom. His impatience with the things of God cost him the kingdom. And friends, this is the lesson for us this morning. This outward impatience was symptomatic of his inner spiritual condition. If he was aware was overall, if he was so committed to what God had said to him through the prophet Samuel, he would never, ever have offered those sacrifices. So what we see here is an outward symptom. We shouldn't be doing place to look is not at the or Samuel taking too long or the pastor or this person or that person or the next person. The first place to look is inside because spiritually, here, spiritually my impatience with God and the things of God are going to take me down the wrong path. Scripture counsels us, Psalm 37, be still before the Lord, wait patiently, him. James 5, 8 says, you too be patient. Stand firm. Why? Because the Lord's coming is near. Hebrews 6, 12, we don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Let's learn from Saul this morning. His lack of patience cost him his ministry, cost him his lineage, cost him his family being in charge of the nation of Israel for all time, as we see happening through the 
the line of David right down to our Messiah. Lesson number one, Saul's lack of patience cost him his ministry. Lesson number two, we see Saul becoming proud. Now when Samuel uh, saw Samuel and Samuel tells him uh, the donkeys he was looking for have been found, Samuel says the following to Saul in 1 Samuel 9. Go back a couple chapters now to verse nine, chapter 9 and verse 20. He says the following, And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned? If not to you and all your father's family. Can you imagine that? I mean, Saul's out looking for his daddy's donkeys. He hears Samuel somewhere in the area. He goes to consult with Samuel. And this big name prophet, this mighty man of God, this judge of the nation of Israel says to him, to whom is all the desire of Israel turned if not to you and your father's family? What? (laughs) Who are you talking to? I'm just out looking for a couple donkeys here. Look at Saul's response in verse 21. He says, but am I not a Benjamite? You can just imagine him. He's he's blown away by this, that I'm the, the desire of Israel. Am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? I mean, he's, he's the smallest family of the smallest tribe. Why do you say such a thing to me? Don't talk to me like that. You know, I can just imagine Saul's exasperation. Me. Just see the humility there. Absolute humility. Recognize who he is, who he is in front of the Samuel, recognizing what he is according to what Samuel's just said to him, you're the desire of Israel. You know what? Even on the day of his inauguration, he was exactly the same. I mean, the trumpets are blaring, the people are gathered, and Saul's missing. He's in hiding in 1 Samuel 21. But when they looked for him, this is at his he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the baggage. They ran and brought him out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. And the people shouted, Long live the king. Amazing. God didn't make a mistake. Saul was the right man. He was this this person who walked in humility. He wasn't interested in the limelight. He's anointed king. He goes back to working on his dad's farm. You know, he avoids the limelight completely. And even when the whole of Israel gathered to, to acknowledge him and to celebrate, he's hiding. Somewhere there amongst the baggage, you know. He doesn't want to be found. Humble, secure in who he was. But you know what? Things quickly changed. Go across to 1 Samuel 15. Early in the morning, verse 12, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he went on to Carmel. It's a little while on now. 
There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. Didn't take up a monument in honor to himself. How crazy is that? I think his pride became so big that he could no longer see himself for what he really was. Friends, herein lies a lesson for us from King Saul. How quickly pride rises up in our lives that we are not even able to see ourselves for who we really are. Let me tell you the first point of knowing there's pride in your life that you can't even see is when you start using yourself as the measuring rod for other people's behavior. When you start saying things like, I would never do that. I would never behave like that. I would never, I would, I would, I would have some fig jam. As soon as that I becomes part of my lifestyle, I'm standing in a place of pride that I can't even see what's going on around me. That's what happened to Saul. Set up a monument in his honor. He couldn't even see what was going anymore. Look what the prophet says to him in 1 Samuel 15 verse 17. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you as king over Israel and he sent you on a mission saying, go destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the law? <clears throat> Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Saul's pride cost him the kingdom. Mark for others. says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Why? God opposes the proud. I don't know about you, but I don't want to stand up in opposition to God. <laughs> I don't want to take that chance. Where pride has risen up in your life, let me tell you, brother and sister, God steps, <coughs> excuse me, firmly against, sorry, the volumes of snot that flow down the back of my throat are quite amazing. <laughs> Need some allergics. It's an amazing thing to me. I've lived in this area all my life, basically. And it makes no sense to me that this time of year, my body has not yet discovered that there's something around here that causes trouble. Huh? This is weird to me. Surely by this time, if you move outside of an area, in an area, you expect to pick up different pollens and stuff. But when you've lived here for nearly as long as I have, what's the problem? Oh, that one. Is that the problem? Is my battery? Is it gone? Okay. You sure? 
I've got strict instructions that when that little light is green, I've still got, no, in fact, when it goes red, I've got another hour to go, and it's still green. Is that better? Is the battery back? Oh, that's not the battery. That's our old problem. Okay, let's keep going. Saul became proud and he lost the kingdom. Lesson number three. Saul was slow to repent. Samuel 1, 15 verse 1 says, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites, and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children, infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Verse 7, then Saul attacked the Amalekites along the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt. He took a gag king of the Amalekites alive. God's told him to totally destroy everything. He decides to take the king alive. Why? Well, it was his bragging rights. That's what they did in those days. Drag the king along and show that you have defeated your foe. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. They were unwilling to destroy these completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Verse 13, when Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you, I've carried out the Lord's instructions. I mean, he's so full of himself. Again, he doesn't even know that he's hardly uh, obeyed what God has told him to obey. But Samuel says, what is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers. Here comes the blame game again. It's somebody else's fault. The soldiers, <coughs> excuse me, brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. You can just feel his this partial obedience. 1 Samuel verse, chapter 15, verse 19, Samuel says, why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder? Now that word in the Hebrew, pounce, means to attack with screams. It means to swoop upon. So it's not just a, it's not just a gentle, or oh, we'll take some of these sheep. They, they went there with uh, full intention, <clears throat> probably screaming with joy, and swooped up all of that, that plunder. Verse 20, Saul says, but I did obey the law. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took the sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. The soldiers, the people, the blame game, on and on and on. Verse 22, Samuel replied, and we know these words, I'm sure. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey 
is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned, I violated the Lord's command in your instructions. I was afraid of the people and so I gave in to them. He's pathetic. Only when Saul is backed into a corner does he finally come clean. See, he was slow to repent. We like to blame others. We like to blame situations and circumstances. We like to blame the things around us because our pride blinds us from recognizing that we are deceiving ourselves. Friends, this morning we need to learn from Saul. Don't be slow to repent. When God has said something and we have not done exactly what he's told us to do. Last lesson very briefly. Saul could not rejoice with others. Interesting point this. One point the Philistines and the Israelites were at war. There's one army on this hill and one army on that hill. There's a valley in between them. And for 40 days a giant, a Philistine who's over three meters tall is taunting the Israelite army. His name's Goliath. His people are too afraid to do anything about it. Along comes this little shepherd boy with some lunch or something for his brothers, and he can't believe that they're allowing this guy to take on the armies of God. And little David defeats Goliath, puts an end to him, sends the Philistines packing King Saul is delighted initially, and he gives David a high-ranking place in his army. And as we read on in the Scripture, we see whatever David did, he was successful at. Then in 1 Samuel chapter 18, uh, and I read from verse 6. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing with joyful songs and tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me only with thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Friends, we've simply got to learn that when others are honored, we have to rejoice. Saul couldn't do that. He was galled by the people's acclaim of David. We read that the very next day, an evil spirit came forcefully upon Saul, and he tried to kill David several times after that. David had won the day. He deserved the credit. But Saul's insecurities, his arrogance, his pride, his self-deception would not allow him to rejoice with David. We need to learn to rejoice honestly when others enjoy success in families, in business, in relationships, in ministry. We must learn to grow beyond ourselves. Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice. And sometimes you 
know that this home sale is doing better than that home sale or this one's doing better than that or this business seems to be prospering more than that. We quick to want to tear one another apart. We start saying stupid things. Oh, well, so-and-so is doing well, but give them time. Or, you know, it's I help them get where they've got. Or it's all about me, me, myself, and I and that dreaded fig jam again. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Shared the story with you often, I think, but I never forget. Now, you see, pastors are the worst. Pastors are the worst. If you go to a pastor's anything, pastor's gathering, the first thing they'll do is say, how big is your church? Or how's the church doing? Or, you know, and they, they're longing to hear that you're not doing as well as they do. I remember being in Corinth on the site of probably the oldest church ever in the city of Corinth. And our tour guide was a minister from the city. And one of the people on the tour group with us asked him, so whatever his name is, how big is your church? He didn't hesitate. He said eight by 13. And the guy said, no, no, no. I mean, how big is your church? He says, it's 8 by 13, last I checked. So the guy said, no, no. How many people in your church? I mean, how many people in your church? He says, I know exactly what you mean. But how many people are in my church has got nothing to do with me. It's God's church. I only know the size of the building. It's 8 by 13. That really has to be our attitude. You know, I know what God has given me. I know what God is doing in my business, in my relationship, in my family. In, you know what? When others seem to be doing better, my call is to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Can you imagine what the church would be like if we went about getting excited when people in the church were doing better than us? Maybe we're a long way from that. But that's what the scriptures call us to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need. Cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those, are parts, those parts of the body that seem to be weak are indispensable. The parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. The parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. Presentable parts need no special honor. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body. Its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Amen. Saul couldn't rejoice when others did better than him. How do we match up? How do we match up in the context of the church? Do you know what happened in the church before you got here today? There's old Mervyn. Some of you don't even know Mervyn's name. There's Mervyn. Mervyn's around the grounds here. Sit down, Mervyn. <laughs> Stand up, Mervyn. <laughs> you see, that's just Mervyn. <laughs> 
He's opened up the place. He's checked that everything's straight. He's put out the tables outside. He's made sure all the, the juicy things are working. He's got all the thermometers there. He's got everything sorted before anybody even comes in. Nobody gives too much attention to Mervyn, but he has put Paul in the front, and you all smile and, and whatever at me, but nobody saw Mervyn. Teresita came in here just now, one of the ushers, with a handful of papers. She had walked this property, obviously picking up the rubbish on the property. None of you saw that. You only see Pupo talking about fig jam and having a laugh. But there's somebody who cleaned up the place so you didn't have to walk into a pigsty. See how it works? Those bits that look better deserve less honor than those seem, that seem to be less presentable. They deserve more honor to keep things going, to make sure it's happening. How many of you know who's sitting in the sound desk this morning? You don't even know. Why? Because, ugh, you know, there's always just somebody there, just doing it, who comes an hour earlier before church, who sits, doesn't know what he's doing most of the time. He's an old guy, you know. Now suddenly he gets lumped with all of this stuff, does an amazing job, but if he's a little bit slow with one slide, everybody turns around and looks. But how many of you have gone and sat there and done that? Do you see what I'm saying? I'm not moaning or complaining. I'm just saying, let's rejoice with others when there's something good happening, when they're doing something, when they're prospering, when, they, when they're being seem to be more blessed than I am. Let's relearn to rejoice when others do better than we do. And I conclude. Here we have Saul, King Saul, God's chosen man, humble, small in his own eyes, not wanting the limelight, and yet a few steps into his kingship, we see him as someone who becomes impatient towards the things of God. Couldn't even wait out that full seventh day. Decided to take matters into his own hands. Becomes proud, wanting to honor himself eventually, even building a monument to himself. And on top of it all was slow to repent, rather choosing to blame others. It's always everybody else's fault. And then when David gets gets. Saul's biggest thorn. He takes care of Saul's biggest problem. Yet he cannot even rejoice when David seemed to be doing better than himself. Let's take these lessons from the life of King Saul today and apply them to our lives uh, as we continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. God willing, next week we'll be having a look at some lessons from the life of King David and his pair of binoculars.